Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for this Wednesday. It is January 27th. Coming up, it's been called a key to controlling the pandemic, but why has Canada been anything but rapid when it comes to distributing those rapid tests? Plus, while Italy considers it, the Trudeau government says they will not sue Pfizer for breach of contract, and Canadian Border Services says it's now turned away more than 30,000 visitors who have tried to enter the country since the beginning of the pandemic. All of that coming up on the podcast right now. The wild card here seems to be the variant or the variants that are out there. These variants which are reportedly more transmissible. Now, as these spread, we just aren't sure just uh, how they might affect the numbers in the coming days and the coming weeks. But we'll take the good news uh, uh, when we get it, and we've got it here today. Again, we're below 2,000, below 1,700, as a matter of fact, when it comes to uh, new COVID cases in the province. And with the variant, by the way, here, there has been obviously a renewed emphasis on testing and the need for it. But despite the fact that rapid testing has been approved in Canada months ago, it turns out that the deployment of them when it comes to rapid testing, well, hasn't been so rapid. And joining us now for more on this is Dr. Jamie Spiegelman. He's a critical care physician, president of Medical Staff Association at Humber River Hospital, is also the co-founder of Spartan Bioscience, and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, first off, uh, we have reportedly purchased the government more than 40 million of these rapid tests, but only roughly 15 and a half million have arrived. Do we know why we haven't uh, received them all? This seems uh, somewhat reminiscent of a Pfizer and the vaccines, doctor. Well, it kind of is. I mean, it's a production problem when you're making so many tests. But at the same time, uh, they're obviously distributing it. The, the companies are obviously distributing it to various countries. So same, same issue, as you mentioned, with the Pfizer issue. The thing is, with these tests, there's variable tests. There's not just one test that they, they've ordered. There, there's different types of tests that they've ordered, right? There's the antigen test, antibody test, and DNA testing, or RNA testing in this case. So there's various testing that they're, they're, they're looking at for rapid testing at this point. All right. Well, we go from the 40 million tests we've ordered, and again, only 15 and a half million have arrived. And of those tests, Global News is reporting, doctor, that fewer than one and a half million of those have actually been used. I mean, do we know why these rapid tests aren't being deployed, even the ones we've got aren't being used? Well, uh, I've learned uh, through going through Health Canada approvals with Spartan Bioscience that Health Canada looks at these tests and figures out where where the government with Health Canada figures out where the most useful place for these tests are. Uh, a lot of these tests, as you know, are antigen tests or antibody tests, and they're not very accurate. So... A lot of the places that have high high incidence of COVID-19, such as the GTA, for example, have good access to central lab testing at this point. Uh, so why use a test that has very low sensitivity uh, uh, to pick up the, the virus when you have a very good test that you could get in a central lab? So there's definitely a role for rapid testing. Uh, the tests that are out there and the tests, that are, the 50 million tests that you mentioned, they're okay. They're good for screening. Uh, they're they're mostly antigen tests. Um, however, 
uh, their sensitivity is not great. If you look at their numbers, most of the tests are less than 80% sensitive, so uh, there's a lot of false negatives. Uh, so uh, there are some reasons why the government hasn't enrolled them out in a, in a, in a large uh, fashion throughout the, throughout the communities in, in, uh, in Canada. Um, there are good tests coming on board, uh, uh, which I believe are more based on uh, DNA, RNA diagnostics or PCR-based tests, and one of them is Spartan Biosciences test that's coming out uh, uh, at this point. All right. Is that test, uh, is it, uh, has it been proven uh, to be more reliable than these uh, previous rapid tests that you were just uh, detailing, uh, doctor? Because that is a big question out there right now, is just how much trust should we be put uh, be putting into uh, these rapid tests? Yeah, so uh, so the benefit of the Spartan test uh, is it's, a, it's the same test that we do in the central lab. It's a PCR-based test on the RNA, so it's way more accurate than these antigen tests based on uh, what we know of these tests. So there, there's a role for all of these. Like the, the bottom line is we need more rapid testing everywhere. We need to be testing everywhere. And I agree that the government has not done a great job at enrolling all of these out into the community. Even if the test has a very low sensitivity, you're, about, you're gonna pick up the positives and you're gonna pick up, you know, you're gonna miss a lot of, te- uh, uh, of patients as well. But Patients have symptoms. They're going to keep on coming back for retesting. So when I have a patient in the hospital and they look like they have COVID, they have symptoms of COVID, uh, such as respiratory failure or other symptoms that we see, uh, and the test is negative, I always repeat it. And, you know, I've had very, very sick patients with negative tests, and on the third test, it's positive. So none of these tests are 100%, even the gold standard. But the obvious advantage of the rapid test is that, uh, theoretically anyways, although we've done, as you say, a poor job in rolling this out and getting it to two Canadians, but theoretically the advantage of the rapid test is that uh, if uh, you do suspect or think maybe you've had contact, you can at least have that test. And would your suggestion be that after that uh, you should, uh, I mean, the nasal swab is still the gold standard, is uh, follow up a rapid test uh, with that testing? For sure. If you have symptoms... Or if the rapid test is positive, uh, the, the general rule is that you send it to a central lab for a confirmation for a PCR-based test. All right. So having said all of that, uh, I don't know, uh, you can't make money looking back, as they say in the business, but uh, looking back at uh, purchasing more than 40 million tests, only getting 15.5 million of these rapid tests ashore here in Canada uh, so far. Was this really uh, all for naught, do you think, doctor? Was this a, a waste of uh, money and resources? No, I don't think so. I think this pandemic is going to go on for another, for months and maybe a year or so. And it's going to, it's generally accepted in the health healthcare profession that COVID-19 is not going away even with the vaccine. So this is going to be part of our normal flora of viruses that we see on a yearly basis. So these tests are going to be useful years to come, I think. So even if there's a back order of these tests, I think they're going to be used eventually. All right. Just finally, uh, doctor, as uh, somebody who's uh, right there on the front lines, is dealing with this, uh, seeing this, uh, also uh, involved in testing and rapid testing, what is your advice when it comes to getting these tests uh, distributed? Uh, What should government uh, be doing? Is it just a case of there's just so much happening all at once right now that, you know, we're trying to do the the nasal swab testing and testing centers there, get rapid testing out, and, of course, uh, we're looking at uh, getting vaccines out and the supply of vaccines? 
So, so my recommendation is to have these tests at, at, at as many places as you possibly can. Have them in corporate offices, have them in airports, have them in schools even. So I think these tests are important universally in our society at this point to get over this pandemic. So this is something you would like to see at uh, local pharmacies, uh, that sort of thing, that they should just be there uh, readily available on store shelves? I think so. No, not, not, necessarily, not necessarily in store shelves. It's a little complex for that. It's not like a pregnancy t- test exactly, but it should be in pharmacies. Maybe the pharmacist or a pharmacist assistant could give the test. Uh, so it's a little more complex than just that. But I think it should be universally uh, uh everywhere and i think accessible to everyone if they want to test all right doctor appreciate the time with us this afternoon thanks so much for joining us thanks here goes dr jamie spiegelman critical care physician at humber river hospital and also the co-founder of spartan bioscience with the very latest on uh, rapid testing and the anything but rapid rollout of those tests across the country you know even with everything going absolutely perfect everything going right Probably we're looking at like two years, two years before the vaccine gets to market. And of course, there's still the question, not only whether or not this vaccine is uh, safe and effective, but also whether or not we have the ability to manufacture it here in this country. So in the meantime, the vaccine from Pfizer remains one of our best hopes. That is, if we can get our promised deliveries. And yesterday during question period, really interesting here, the uh, conservatives, they were asking the liberal government What recourse, if any, was negotiated if Pfizer failed to deliver and why that hasn't been enacted? Joining us now is our legal expert, 640 Toronto legal expert, Joseph Neuberger. He's on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Joe, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. First off, can the government, Joe, much like a private company or private citizen, I mean, can it put something like this in a contract and uh, sue for breach of contract? Absolutely. So a government uh, purchasing uh, vaccines from a pharmaceutical company is like any other contract or procurement done by the government. So they will have stipulations as to quantity purchased and delivery dates. And if those delivery dates are not met, the government could have recourse to illegal action. I suspect, however, that given the complexities of developing and manufacturing vaccines, and it's a highly specialized very intricate process, there must be uh, conditions within the contract that uh, doesn't make the delivery dates hard dates. I would imagine that there are provisions there that would allow for unforeseen circumstances that would require a delay in in delivery and um, even other conditions that that would um, prevent the government from suing on, on a delay in delivery because this is just a unique circumstance that we're in now where uh, both these companies, Moderna and Pfizer, have come to market with this in, in less than a year. And, um, you know, we're, we're in an emergency situation around the globe. So I would suspect that these contracts have uh, considerable uh, conditions in there to prevent uh, a lawsuit of this nature, in my opinion. But we have not heard details of the contracts themselves. It, it's rather... Uh, opaque right now as to what what the agreements really uh, contain. 
It's an interesting point you bring up about the product, that being the uh, vaccine and just how quickly this was uh, developed. And we didn't even know at the beginning. Uh, we are just talking about this uh, last hour. The government was throwing money at different companies, just kind of making bets that hopefully their vaccine would be successful and w- would come to market and we would be in line for that. And this vaccine is not a product like it's... I don't know, it's not like I own an auto manufacturing plant and I've agreed to buy X amount of fan belts from your company and uh, they got to be here every Tuesday. And if they're not here on Tuesday, well, then we've got a problem. Yeah, you're, you're, you've got it right on the nose. It's such an intricate process that within the production uh, pr- process itself, so many things can possibly go wrong and they need to be meticulous and the product that they produce and then send out to the countries that it's so specialized. And, and we're in such unique circumstances that you don't want to uh, resort to litigation when really the two companies that the world right now is hinging on, frankly, for some normalcy is Pfizer and Moderna. Yes, there's uh, AstraZeneca, but its efficacy is low and there's real questions about them as well. So, you know, you've got those two companies and to get into litigation with one right now, I just don't think would be would be an effective way of trying to protect the the public here in Canada. Because I was going to ask you, at the end of the day, even if we did sue Pfizer for some sort of breach of contract, I mean, by the time that works its way through the courts, uh, Joe, at best we might get, I don't know, some monetary compensation. I mean, it's not like it's going to get the vaccines uh, to us any quicker. That You're exactly right. So at the end of the day, it's, it's some monetary damages, However you uh, work that out, you know, it's going to be some intricate process as well. But it doesn't get the vaccine to us quicker. Uh, It can create bad blood. Um, You know, these are companies that you want to talk to and continually negotiate with and say, okay, you have the delay. We have these delivery dates. What can we do to to, to get more uh, even at that later date? So if we're delayed by three weeks or a month, we can have much larger batches come in. So this is really a process of negotiation. Uh, and really hoping that we're able to get what what we're promised. But we are in a very difficult position uh, behind other countries. Um, you know, this is manufacturing, which is not in North America. It's in Europe. There's problems in, in the EU right now with them using the AstraZeneca. There's all sorts of stuff at play right now. So we're in such a fragile situation. Really, I think diplomacy is required right now in solid negotiation skills. Yeah, so as a lawyer, you would not be advising the government right now to pursue uh, legal action uh, that possibly, to your point, could create bad blood, could really sort of hurt what is needs to be an important uh, relationship, a re- relationship, sorry, with some priority for this country. Absolutely. I, I see this in humanitarian terms, that we're in a global crisis right now, and we all sort of need to work together and understand what the goal is here. And the goal is to help people of this world you know, get protected against this terrible uh, virus, and uh, it, it, litigation is not the way to do it. Yeah. Quiet diplomacy, I think they call it, or uh, backroom diplomacy, that uh, hopefully there's conversations going on amongst uh, officials uh, right now as to uh, why Canada was, uh, it seems, anyway, singled out for not getting uh, their vaccines, our vaccines when uh, promised, and uh, what can we do to uh, maybe rectify that uh, situation rather than bring down the, the hammer of the law? Yeah, you know, and I would just say one other thing. I'm a little disappointed that there wasn't more of a purchase effort for Moderna, which is also uh, with a very high efficacy and and can be stored at a more normal temperature. We seem to have had a lot of emphasis on Pfizer, whereas other countries uh, have uh, have made deals for a lot more quantities of Moderna. And I think if I understood the facts correctly some time ago, it looked like we passed 
on an option to buy 16 million doses. So there are questions the public have a right to get answers to. Um, we need them, but right now the focus has to be on just getting these vaccines and getting them into people who desperately need them. Yeah, without a doubt. And would you want to see what the contracts look like with other countries when it comes to Pfizer, uh, Joe? Just uh, wondering whether or not to, oh, yeah. maybe we did or didn't do our due diligence here. Maybe there was a loophole in our contract that made it easier for Pfizer to say, listen, we've got some production problems. The Canadian contract is the one we're going to have to back out or we can back out on uh, right now. Yeah, it's it's a good point. I, I would be very interested in that. And I was particularly concerned about how, how we would fare against the United States and then uh, with the countries where they are doing the um, the actual manufacturing. So I think it would be interesting to see what those contracts are. But, you know, getting access to that with all the confidentiality uh, uh, agreements in place would probably be very difficult. But it would be very interesting to educate all of us as to how this was negotiated and if some loophole was created where we sort of get the, get the reduction. But, but again, I, you know, we're hearing it's a slowdown, not just for us, but for the United States and others. But it certainly doesn't make us feel any better, that's for sure. Without a doubt. Interesting conversation. Joe, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on. Take care and be well. You as well. 640 Toronto legal expert Joseph Newberger with us. As talk continues regarding a possible outright travel ban, Global News has learned that Canadian Border Services has turned away some 30,000. 30,000 people, travelers, trying to enter the country by either land or air since the pandemic began. Joining us now for more on this, travel expert Marty Firestone is on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio. Marty, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here as always. Okay, uh, 30,000 in an age where travel is supposedly restricted. Uh, are you surprised by this number, Marty? Because, again, that's not the number of travelers, people traveling. That's just the number that have been turned away. Oh, it's, it blows me away. And when you think about a foreign national, that would be someone that's not a Canadian resident or doesn't reside in Canada. For the life of me, what were they thinking when they chose to come either drive if they drove or fly in? And what made them think they'd get in? Because basically Trudeau told them as of March that there would be nobody allowed into the country from outside. Yeah, have we done a good enough job when you see this number, 30,000, of defining exactly what is essential, non-essential travel, do you think, Marty? I don't think so. That, that's been the problem from day one, that nobody seems to understand who's essential and who's non-essential. And that's why we have all the craziness going on right now and why we're waiting for some decisions, which I have to tell you, another day has come and gone and nobody seems to be addressing the problem. Yeah, we were expecting possibly an announcement from the Prime Minister today during his regular briefing at 11.30 this morning, but uh, nothing came of that, Marty? Nothing. Not Didn't touch on it at all. And I think the days are getting numbered because, honestly, you can only say so many times, I'm advising you to cancel trips and not travel because there will be future restrictions without any warning. But but where are they? Where's the warning? Where's anything? Where Where is the decision? There's nothing. Yeah, is the feeling uh, amongst the travel industry is that the time is of the essence here, that people do need a clarity, that uh, we're also going to need a run-up? Because if we are indeed going to see some sort of ban on a travel and just not this warning that we got last week from the Prime Minister to cancel if you do have any spring break plans, I mean, this isn't just something you can snap your fingers and it happens uh, the next day, right? you got to give people time to uh, prepare. There's got to be some lead-up time for this? Apparently, you would think there should be, but the way I'm reading into this now, constitutionally, I'm not sure they can ban uh, flights 
to and from Canada and strand Canadians abroad. So I'm kind of leaning more towards the quarantine and the federal facility slash hotel concept that's being thrown about now. That, I can tell you right now from my clientele, is tremendous inquiries as to could that happen because if it is i'm either staying longer where i am or tell me when it's happening because i want to get home before it happens so that right there tells you something so what is that proposal exactly marty or do we know is that still being uh, worked out do we know what exactly would happen if you uh, travel say into a uh, pearson uh, they would uh, i don't know drive you directly into a hotel where you must stay for 14 days under pretty strict lockdown Yeah, it would appear, and again, nothing carved in stone yet, but from what I read into this, you would be boarded onto a, I'm assuming, a transportation of some sort and taken to a hotel on the airport strip. I say that because that would make the most sense, and I'm sure there's 30 hotels there that are totally unoccupied now, and you would be in your room for two weeks and serve three meals a day, by the way, at your own expense, and that's the concept that you would be under the watchful eye of somebody they were looking after you. It sounds almost barbaric if you really get into it. Yeah, and again, this is at your expense, not the expense of the Canadian taxpayer. If uh, you want to fly uh, into Canada, if you feel as if your uh, trip is that important, that that essential, is you're going to have to find uh, the time and money for two weeks uh, at a hotel. Exactly. And when you think about it, you and a family of five that were flying down to Cancun or Puerto Vallarta for one week, it's now just turned into a nightmare. I mean, forgetting that you needed a COVID test to leave, a COVID test to come back, now quarantined in a hotel room for two weeks. It's it's absolutely bizarre. Is this uh, what's going to uh, take care of this problem? Do we really need a uh, travel ban? I know the Premier has been on about it, the, particularly the uh, last few days, is saying the federal government needs to do something. We need mandatory testing uh, at Pearson. That should be happening. And he's also uh, you know, alluded to, called for a uh, ban in previous press conferences. But if you put something like that in place, do you think that's enough of a deterrent, that this mandatory quarantine? No, I don't think we should go that route. My own opinion at this point is banning flights that are coming from countries where the the variant uh, virus is possibly present, such as South Africa and Portugal, UK. So banning those flights in and out, that will stop that problem out of the way. And then just the uh, pre the rapid testings at the airport, because that 72-hour test prior, you could be negative when you do that test, but you could be positive walking off the plane, which it has shown, according to Doug Ford yesterday, about 2% came off positive. If you do those two measures, you're at least starting in the right direction. And at least you're just not threatening, but you're coming through with what you said, changes to the existing travel. Yeah, just finally, Marty, and this might be more of a medical uh, question, but uh, I'm wondering if it's all too little too late. I mean, we know that several of the variants uh, are already here, and in some cases in fairly concerning uh, quantities. So, uh, I mean, is the genie already out of the bottle? You, you may be right, and I heard a good expression today that it's like squeezing a lemon that's already been squeezed. I mean, the problem is, yeah, it's here already, and it can go along its merry way now without anybody else traveling from coming from another country. But it is a way to shut off future transmission i guess but you are right it's here and now we got to battle this at this moment all right marty appreciate it as always thanks so much for the time thank you for having me take care there's travel expert marty firestone he is the president of travel secure